say. <laughs> Welcome to the Raleigh Bitcoin Meetup. What does success look like for Bitcoin? Like, when will we know we made it? When Anybody one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. When one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. Check. Um, I think it might be if, like, a president of the United States uh, tweets the word Bitcoin. I think that might be success. I agree. I think that's a, I think that's a good barometer. <laughs> well, when I initially started thinking about this question, uh, my first thought was to think about what would make Bitcoin unsuccessful. And there are lots of ways that Bitcoin could be unsuccessful. Now, just to clarify, you said this came from your brother, yeah, this right? Yeah, came from a conversation with my brother who, yeah. you know, he's, he's largely a Bitcoin skeptic, but he's interested to learn more about it, and, but he's not, he's not quite into it, you know, from a, a hodler perspective, but he is interested in it. Um, and his question to me is, you know, if you think about uh, some things are easily quantifiable when there's, when they're a success, you know, you want to graduate from college, it's like, you walk across the stage, you get your diploma, you graduated, like mission accomplished, success. Um, but for some things, it's a lot more difficult to quantify when they are successful. And basically his, his frustration was kind of, when are we going to get past, in his words, like kind of the, the, the frothiness or the hype and, and actually see what, you know, what Bitcoin does and what makes it successful. Initially, I was, and the, the one caveat was that it can't be based on price because that was just the rules of the engagement. So my initial thought was just that if you, know, you will know when Bitcoin is successful when you use Bitcoin and when it works for you and whatever you're doing you know, with it, whether you're holding it and storing value in it or using it to transact, you know, whatever your use case is, if it does it and it works for you, then it was successful. You know, and every day that it doesn't die, it's continuing to prove that success. So I think we have to define what utilities Bitcoin has, right? I mean, for, for many, as we had a discussion off there a moment ago, the utility of Bitcoin is holding and, and waiting and storing your value and your wealth in Bitcoin. Um, for others, how many uh, transactions can fit in a block matter. Um, and I think that uh, going down that avenue, one would have to clearly define what utility is because it is different from coin to coin. But for Bitcoin, I think a lot of its utility is as a store of wealth. Um, it's digital gold, in my opinion. And, and I've never made a transaction with gold, to my knowledge. You know... Oh, wait, go ahead and hit yours. I'm, I'm jealous. There's someone out there who hitting $10,000 was Bitcoin was a success. And that is a very happy person right now, you know? <laughs> I think um, it's an interesting... I actually just read a book or listened to a book um, not too long ago called The Formula, talking about the difference in understanding success as like a performance metric and then that there is a completely different type of success that we are is generally the one that we are talking about, which is actually a social success. It's a, it's a network success. It's like I have... Uh, it's like I can always, you know, it's like something in sports is like clearly performance-based where, you know, it doesn't matter which one is the most popular, like the person who gets the championship is the one who, you know, competes in this specific head-to-head -head tier type thing. Um, and, but in the case of like some sort of 
like social success or, or like like because it's not it's not social like I don't mean it in the sense that like everyone has adopted it like, I'll just start with my version of like what I think is Bitcoin being successful is that Bitcoin is a new system for defining what the monetary rules are like I think that's its core value and the fact that it is doing that outside of everything that we are currently think of as defining the monetary rules. I'm just doing it in a completely new sense in the digital world. So like my view of Bitcoin as successful would be when a when on a global scale all central bank decisions have to account for it. When they cannot when they are making decisions and they have to go, but wait, what about Bitcoin? When it is a force of gravity and the idea of what is money, because, and I don't think before that I would consider it successful. I, I would consider it a brilliant experiment in attempting to do that. But I think the key is that we are actually changing monetary, like, like the actual nature of money. And that, that's, a, that's a big goal. You yeah. know, that's going to take a long time to accomplish. And I think that a goal like that of viewing success in that light looks way beyond something as fickle as the day-to-day -day price. You know? mm -hmm. And that's, that's looking at the long-term stability of the, wor the, the world economic system and how people are going to make decisions on being responsible ir or irresponsible. So I, I think that's a good one. Uh, the one thing I'd... I'd want to ask is then if Bitcoin is the internet of money, when would you have defined the internet was successful? Mm. Because if you can define the internet being a success, because early on people thought it was just an experiment. It was just a you know, it was a you know, con interconnection between CERN labs to the Large Hadron Collider to interchange data, you know, openly. But then when did that succeed? If that was a success we'll then extrapolate when Bitcoin will be successful? I would say my, like when I considered the internet, when I considered the old, the legacy system, because we're going, coming from something and going to something. Like that's why I don't think, even, even though gold has like a, you know, seven to eight trillion dollar market, I don't consider it, like I don't think it's causing a huge like stink in central bank plans specifically because it's on its way out. It's in its decay phase, I believe, like with the birth of the digital world and the internet age. Whereas Bitcoin is in a position where it's on its way up. Like, so it's in its growth phase. So I think Bitcoin at $5 trillion makes a more significant impact into the central banking decisions than gold does at eight. Because Bitcoin is a threat. Gold is that thing that we're waiting to disappear. Um, and... Uh, and in that same sense, like my view of when like the internet was successful was when I would go back to the news and realize that they were talking about what was happening on the internet. They were like the news was talking about the tweet of the day or the Facebook like thing. It was it was a way to regurgitate the important thing, which was on the internet, to all the people who were no not on the internet yet. Um, are we comfortable saying that the internet's a success? 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, it's an interesting right. experiment. But, but so, like, the point that I'm bringing up by, by saying that is that, you know, you're saying that we're coming from something and going to something, towards something else. Um, I think that your point is well received to me that there is no destination here, right? Success isn't de defined with technology by crossing a finish line. Mm -hmm. um, it is a spectrum that doesn't have an end. Yeah. I, I think, uh, and I think you'll like this answer, Guy. Um, I think one metric of success might be when people prefer to receive payment in Bitcoin rather than dollars. Mm -hmm. Like I paid Paul for something today and he told me he'd rather receive payment in Bitcoin. And if the majority of people, <laughs> if the majority of people do that, they mean it's not only that they trust it, it's also it gets back to that basic somebody wants to store the value of their time. And currently we do that with the U.S. dollar. But if people would rather be paid in Bitcoin, it's kind of like, I mean, first, they have to trust the system. And second of all, they're kind of saying, I trust that this thing will store my value better. Mm -hmm. So that, that's going to be a long time, too. But it might, it, it might not be that long. I don't know. Well, your point about time being valuable, has anybody read George Gilder's latest book, The End of Google? Uh, my point wasn't that time was valuable. My, my point was people are trying to save the value of their time in uh, money. Right. And yeah. what, what George Gilder says is that that's the only thing of true value we have is our time. So yeah. it's actually syncing up with what you're saying. But he, he believes that Bitcoin's not going to succeed. And I don't want to say too much because he's a very, very smart man. Uh, you know, he used to write for the NNO years ago, and I read his books, and then I quit reading his books, and I wish I hadn't stopped. He's an extremely bright man. I won't try to explain why he says Bitcoin won't succeed, but it has to do with not mining any more coins after a certain year. He feels that that is a major... I think it's the shift, shift to the fee market. Uh, guys, let's stop putting things on the table, okay? <laughs> the, the, sound, the sound is crazy, okay? He's the editor, and he's, he's having a reaction as an audio editor. He's over there in his audio editor, freaking out. <laughs> Thank God I don't edit the audio anymore. <laughs> so, I, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> Oh God, that so okay, now that you got that, so, so what are your what are your comments about uh, his fear that uh, stopping to create new coins is going to be detrimental? Nobody understands Austrian economics. This is a thing that's just not an idea that's out Even there. Even Austrian economics, uh, yeah, so Austrians don't understand, don't understand Austrian. Austrian. It's not taught anywhere. You have to kind of stumble across it. And it's Bitcoin is this game theory. Basically, if you did not believe in Austrian economics, it's Bitcoin dis is almost disproving. The doubters. It's gotten to a certain point. It's continued to grow. It's a nation of people that's not physical. It's a nation of people who are connected to the internet. But it's a big economy that gets, it's getting humongous. So the idea you can't run an economy off Austrian economics, it's already an economy that's worked for about 10 years. And economies have died a lot faster than that before. So it's already beaten some, I guess, traditional economies. Well, thank you, because that was exactly my take, that he understands a lot about the Internet and blockchain, and he's a really smart guy, but he doesn't get that. And then it kind of goes to then what are the existential risks regarding, like, Bitcoin? Like, what, what are the things that could literally destroy it or, you know, take it offline? Or what are the attack vectors? Yeah, like I said, I mean, there's web pages like BTC Threat Model, and what was that other web page, Human Threat Model? Human Threat. Yeah, I mean, there's there's people that do nothing all day but think about different attack vectors and write them up and and, and talk about them. Um, 
Oh, but to your specific thing about when all the coins are finished being mined. So this is like a hundred years from now. So, I mean, no one really knows a million things can happen, but the miners are going to be incentivized by transaction fees as that goes out. So it's, it's going to change the incentive for mining a little bit, but it's not like, it's not a huge, like that's not a problem that I spend much time worrying about just because it's way out there and we already have kind of an answer that we'll just transition to transaction fees. There was even a block back in um, the heat of the, the back in January, December, 2017, that had more money in transaction fees than in Coinbase. So there actually has been an example where the miners got more money from transaction fees than from um, discovery of new coins. So that's, it, it's going to be like uh, 2140. 2140 is when it's yeah. like 1.3 Satoshis and you can't right. cut it in half again. I don't think um, these people who criticize the coin supply shrinking are criticizing it because they understand the process of mining well enough to think the miners won't get paid. They don't think you can have a finite coin supply. They don't think that works economically. That That's their criticism. And it would have, the reality is the technology is not important. You could have had a finite coin supply in 1800 as well as you can have it today. The question is, does it work or not? And this is pretty much the first experiment we've done with it right. since gold and silver. Yeah, right. And it worked then. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it did take me a while to figure out that that's what, what people meant, that they just, they don't understand the idea of, yeah, just finite supply. But to me, it's just kind of obvious that it, it's not obviously wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's like, of course you could have a finite amount of gold. What if, what if they stopped mining gold tomorrow? I mean, would gold be like impossible to use as money if someone stopped mining gold? Like it, it just doesn't it, make... It wouldn't change at all. Like, it, yeah, how it, could, it, it wouldn't change. Like, yeah, yeah right. Only, only yeah, a little like, bit. It wouldn't be ridiculous. Right. But it's, it's, right. it's so yeah, funny. It's valuable though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, it's so funny, but, but that is the, really the thought in people's mind is that like, oh, we have to have this continuous influx of money or money won't be possible to transact with. It's like, What? Like, it's, it's so crazy that that's how people think. Speaking of gold, didn't you hear, uh, I don't know, about the recent news about NASA was uh, evaluating uh, an asteroid that had, like, an unbelievable amount of gold. If it was... Divi- like hundreds di- of times oh, the whole it was, Earth's reserves Yeah, it, everybody like on the face of the planet could have billions of dollars worth of gold. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's a, a slightly different um, conversation. But that's one of the things guys like to talk about is uh, mining more gold is just a matter of it being worth it to do it. It's right. like, yeah, uh, gold is not limited like, like Bitcoin is, but that's a different conversation. If what gold are, went to like $20,000 and it happened to be, you know, uh, only cost like $19,000 for the energy to irradiate mercury down to gold, like what you can do, it's, you know, two, two uh, neutrons away, um, then, you know, like, then we have all the gold we need at $20,000 and there's a, pretty pretty hefty ceiling on that price depending on the scarcity of mercury and then lead and then like all the other ones that we just go up the ladder how much energy does it cost to make it so yeah anybody have any more comments about like what uh success or what would you want to say um did anyone read the white paper and get out or anything else that toshi wrote and have an idea of what success would have meant for him like he created an open source project at some point, that project should be complete or 1.0 or whatever. Well, there's the famous quote, 
about saying in 20 years or 10 years, there'll either be a lot of transactions or a little. Okay. So if we're still That's, around in 10 more years, yeah. it's success. He also said, um, and this is one of my favorite quotes of Satoshi, says, uh, and I don't remember exactly, but it was something along the lines of, like, if this, thing's, if this thing works, we can gain an important ground for liberty for at least a few more, like, at least a few years. Like, he talked about it on a very small, like, like envisioning of just, like, you know, maybe for 10 years, like, we can be a little bit more free with this thing. And I always thought that was really cool to see, like, to kind of get a little glimpse of, like, his perspective of, like, maybe it could be big, but, you know, if not, isn't it worth it if we can just pull it off for a little while kind of thing? So... Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anybody have any other topic they want to talk about? No. I'm still FOMOing over Bitcoin. Like I don't want to miss out. And every time I come to a Bitcoin meetup, I leave. Every time I'm at home or at work, I'm thinking about Bitcoin and how I would hate to be that schmuck that came to a meetup all through 2017 through 2020 and wasn't putting every fucking piece of penny, <laughs> dime, nickel, picking up a goddamn penny in the streets to put it towards Bitcoin. I mean, in 10 years time, are we gonna be having a meetup where we're talking about who didn't make it? Like, that's, that's something that, that dominates the forefront of my mind quite a bit is that I, I don't want to miss any opportunity to be a part of what Bitcoin is doing and, and be a part of that train because I, I missed out on a on a few years at the very beginning. I don't think I will ever get to five thousand Bitcoin. I don't think I will ever get to one thousand Bitcoin. But I sure as shit I'm gonna try. <laughs> Every fucking day. Yeah, you gotta go hundred X, man. That's the only way. <laughs> Where's J C <laughs>
in, in a world where fiat is worthless is a pretty big deal. If, if fiat collapses, do countries even exist, though? I mean, once the dollar collapses, why do I believe in America? Doesn't, isn't that a wake-up call that, oh, yeah, I paid all my t- taxes for all this time and my country doesn't even exist more now? I would say... Party time. I, <laughs> I would say about, like, whether or not do countries exist um, is, like, people have, like, a deep need for community and like the idea of like a social identity. And I think in the same way that there was a time where all government was based on religion, but even though we have a, we don't have, we have a non-Christian, like we don't have, a, our government doesn't enforce any sort of religion or tell anybody to go to church, but are there churches? Mm-hmm. Like, yes, religion is alive and well. There's plenty of religions in this country. And like, I think I think we'll probably change a lot of what we think of as our community and like our network and our social identity. But I don't think the idea of a country will really go anywhere. Like, I I mean, why should it be harder for you to move from here to London than from here to Birmingham, Alabama? Right. You live in a very, in a actual town or city country. You mean like actual restrictions? Well, I'm saying I'm saying the the idea of these boundaries is a myth. Like the city you live in is real, the town you live in is real, but the country is not. There's nothing making us closer to Alabama than to England. Okay, yeah, right. I agree. So uh, I don't get that. What the the state does the state exist? I mean, like North Carolina. No. Okay, but the the city does. Raleigh does. Yeah. I explain that. Um, it does, they both don't exist, but it's easier to relate because you're probably interacting with you, people who are in Raleigh on a day-to-day basis where you're not really, unless you're, inter, and I think this might be when you start to travel internationally, you get more of a sense of I'm an American, whereas most people stay in their own city. They're interacting with people who say, oh, Raleigh's great. Oh, did you hear the new thing come to Raleigh? Whereas America is more of a symbol yeah, well, I think your point is you can tell when you drive out of a city. You can't tell when you drive out of a state unless there's a sign. You, you can also see okay. cities and towns from space. Like you can say there's right, a downtown. Right. It has this pattern all over the world, or in this part of the world, downtowns look like this. You know, okay. there, there, on a local level where you physically are, you can experience a city. You can't experience a whole country the size of the United States. You can't saying you're in the United States and you're in Hawaii is not meaningful. You you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I do like that idea of like um, identity and saying that you belong to something being more and more local. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I'm not first an American. Like, I'm first uh, wherever I you know, my family, right? And then I'm part of my neighborhood, and then I'm a part of my city. And like, as we get out in like bigger geographic region, our kind of like our identity with that entity should go to decrease in a way. Right. We're also in this period of like lo- the largest period of human migration in history, in recorded history. Hundreds of millions of people are forced to move around the world in the last decade or two. Yeah. And Bitcoin people might be part of that group if certain countries become so harsh towards Bitcoin and other countries are it's actually livable to have Bitcoin, then we could conceivably have to move for a period of time. So many people are refugees, so many people are in exile, and it could happen in first world countries because Bitcoin is such a threat to first world dominance of the world, you know. I'm going underground. Who's coming with me? 
I'll probably go underground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Do we want to go in on like a bunker or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like a really tall pizza. one that has like nice, it's got a pool or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pool table would be yeah. good too. I want to tr- yeah. go yeah. underground billiards in the tropics. Billiards over water. <laughs> billiards over water. <laughs> Just so long as it's got good internet. I don't care where we go. <laughs> it's true. We need a fiber connection. Hey, I'm not splitting anything less with a bunch of bitches. Internet hogs is what y'all yeah, are. Everybody's got their own Bitcoin node. Nobody wants to trust the bunker. <laughs> <laughs> um, getting back to something you said, Jared, about uh, the feeling of Bitcoin like going up crazy. I feel I feel weird about that. I, I feel weirdly like responsible in a way, like a burden on me uh, in a way. And about what am I going to do? I'm not running for office. I, I, I don't really care about power. Maybe this is a personal thing, but, you know, I, I think... I believe, um, who is it that wrote the article about a Bitcoin world would make better art and music and stuff like that? Gigi writes about that, I think. But um, I think Gigi had one. Yeah. That. So, yeah. so my, my hope is that like just like billionaires will found art colleges and will just um, make this that like that's what I want to do. If I okay, a so you would you would I'm use your Bitcoin to commission art, philosophy, and music, and I would just try to make that that world come yeah. about yeah it's like once you get the money then you go back to what you were doing before what to you know i'll use it for to commission bitcoin art yeah i think like that, i think yeah. being successful in that way is really just about freedom is that like you like money like the lack of capital is a restriction on what you want to do with your time and your life like what you want to devote your life to is that you're you're forced to uh, like, like you just have this natural limitation of what you can choose to do with your time. And like, so like if I was like a Bitcoin billionaire, I would just do what it was that I want to do with my time. Like what arguably is that's kind of what I'm doing right now. Like uh, that's, that's just why I dedicate my day to the Bitcoin podcast is I'd probably do that. And I'd probably if I had, you know, a billion dollars on top of it, I'd be like, all right, let's make a movie, too. Um, free but, t-shirts you know free t-shirts <laughs> Here, here's but that's that's essentially you know like my goal is to just chase what fascinates me here's an ethical question i have about bitcoin let's say you do become a bitcoin billionaire and you can't leave your money to any people just because it didn't work just, sorry wait when yes <laughs> but so you you're, you're a bitcoin billionaire you can you, there's no person you can leave it to just for some reason everyone you know has passed away or whatever but you could either leave it to the charities of your choice or you could burn your bitcoin when you die what is the better choice because i would contend that burning your bitcoin when you die is more correct because you're not burdening people who are past your death doing what you wanted them to do I'll burn it for you. If it was a success, wow. if it was like that's a, that's, some deep that's the interesting <laughs> stuff. How did you get there? Huh. Explain, explain your point. Yeah, because <laughs> that's, that's that's great. Because you're imposing your will, like after your death. Which now that I think about it, that seems really arrogant. It might seem. Yeah. It might it's, seem. It's, it's kind of an. It has like there's a lot of criticisms of charity, and it's just kind of extending those ideas to Bitcoin. You okay. know. I think it's also like, I think that's a really interesting question because it's kind of the question between something that's. Uh, that you're leaving behind value objectively or subjectively. Mm. Um, and in the sense of, like, if you burn your coins, what you're, what you're really doing is donating 
the tiniest fraction of it to everyone who uses Bitcoin, mm. as opposed to directing it to something that I'm like, this is my specific thing that I want to happen after I die versus yeah. let's yeah. just Dang, give it back to everybody. That's going to change family dynamics a lot. <laughs> Because the kids have to be nice to you, or else everybody in the world just gonna burn gets all the shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what trust do. Trust allow you to manage the money after you die. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, along the same lines, it's totally ethical to kill people that own Bitcoin because you're just donating their lost funds. <laughs> that's a to the rest that's of the a world. Very interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. That's as long as you point, burn right? the coins. As long as, as, long as you burn the, the coins. coins. Burnt. Oh, but you have to be sure that they don't have a will set up. That would be. Yeah. That'd be hard. Real conflict there. Real con- <laughs> Matt O'Dell, if you're listening to this and your uh, last message uh, company, last message, uh, uh, <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. <laughs> Anything else on that, Wade? Or- uh, th- that's about it. Uh, one thing I will say is, do you guys remember what success looked like, like the first week you got into Bitcoin? Was it a was it a price target? Or I, I'll tell you what it was for me is I I did want to make it too expensive for countries to do like colonial pursuits kind of it'd be the last nail in the coffin of neocolonialism that you really <clears throat> countries had to stick within their own borders they couldn't have a big influence either around the world or just in their region telling other countries what to do that would undermine monetary policy so that would happen i guess it's too specific but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as far as like when like early on like when i was like first in Bitcoin is that it seemed like something that like I like I felt like like when I read about it and like like I like I went hard studying like I was like this is something like amazing and this is something like super valuable and people are not understanding what the hell this is and but my idea of success like it didn't exist outside of just like the forums that I was on you know like it just wasn't it wasn't anywhere else like the first time I heard it in like meat space, like a person that I just ran into in real life, not directed behind a Bitcoin search that said the word Bitcoin. I was like, wait, what the fuck you know about this? You know, <laughs> like it, that, that blew my mind. And then like, you know, it started showing up on the news and people would call me. They'd be like, did you hear somebody said Bitcoin on the news? You know, and like that was success for me back then. It was just the idea of it being a real thing as opposed to just that specific internet search that I look for. Yeah, I think some of us, maybe all of us got in, we didn't know what success looked like, but we're all like, this is going to be successful, and I'm early, I need to get in with as much as possible, you know, and contribute if I can. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, what when, what I thought success was when I first got in was merchant adoption. Mm-hmm. I thought, I was like, you know, what, Overstock, yeah, Overstock.com yeah. started accepting Bitcoin. I was like, yes, you know, and everybody on Reddit, everybody back then thought that that was the measure of success, which I don't believe anymore. Like, I think merchant adoption, and there's a little bit of like, that's a statement that that company believes in the technology, like, so, so that's good. But like, I don't really care that much about, they're just idiots if they don't accept Bitcoin. Like, I don't really like need them to, you know, so... So, um, yeah, like whatever I think the, the sign of success is right now, I don't have a whole lot of confidence that that all might stay the same. A lot of people were originally talking, you know, maybe four or five years ago about making Bitcoin this new means of transacting between individuals. How many transactions can you send per minute? That was the big measure of success. And I always felt that was a crock of shit. 
Like yeah. Bitcoin is never going to live up to it. Bitcoin is never ever going to replace the the Swift network. Uh, never going to replace what Visa and Mastercard are doing uh, quite effectively. Um, that for a lot of people, um, and for a long time, even though something I was I was chewing on was the measure of success. I'm glad to know that that's not the case. How much value can you store in a Satoshi? It for me is where I'm at right now. You um, sparked a question in my mind. What, does it make sense that we're going to a place where there's no way to know how many Bitcoin transactions there are per second? Like if I hand someone an open dime or whatever, you know, nobody's going to know because that's off chain. I mean, is, is lightning headed into the direction? So there's no way for one computer to, to know all of the transactions that are happening like, does that make sense, or, yeah, so or am, actually, I, am I, had, I off here? I had this thought earlier today when we were talking about uh, about this on the Telegram. I think Bitcoin can be a success if there are no more transactions that are visible. That are visible? Yeah. Okay, okay. so transactions so, happen. So, look, a transaction visible. could happen, sure, yeah. but you don't need to see it to know that something's valuable, right? I yeah. mean, I may have gold stuck in my basement, yeah. Um, but you know that it's valuable because it's in my basement or that right. I assign value to it, right? It, do we need, do, do transactions intrinsically convey value? And I think the answer is no. I, I think um, if there's a way to certify the 21 million cap still, then that would be fine. But some of the arguments against the privacy coins is that it's just so hard for everyone to verify that oh, so the 20 million yeah, cap So I'm is not being. suggesting that that changes. I'm just, if everyone decided to take a day not trading Bitcoin at all, no transactions whatsoever, would Bitcoin still be as valuable? And the answer is yes, <laughs> yes. definitively. User, activa user activated daily, bear market. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like I mean, they're user activated users. bull market. Yeah. yeah I mean, that, that was a thing, right? That was yeah. going around Twitter, right? That'd be awesome. <laughs> this is like, we're, this is not Silicon Valley. We don't measure our success by like daily active users or monthly active users or return users. That's, that's just, that's just nonsense. That's just noise. That's just nothing helpful to what Bitcoin is. Um, the ability for the network to work and for it to be properly decentralized is where its value is d derived from. And, and the fact that a transaction happens is irrelevant, in my opinion. Yeah, I, think, I don't see how a transaction adds value. Yeah, the transaction itself, like I completely agree with that. I think it's about, um, it's a, like to, to me, like the way that like I've been able to wrap my head around this more recently and that like I always fall back to is seeming the most important aspect of Bitcoin is as an arbiter. Like, it is that thing that when something doesn't go right, Bitcoin is sure to enforce an objective truth on it. And like, so it's like a court case. Like, it's like a, it's like a court system uh, in the terms of value and ownership um, that is external to our judicial system, our uh, a political system like the whole stack of what we think of as property rights with government courts legislation and all that stuff like this is a competition for that and that because of that like it's, it's success obviously like the success of a court system is clearly not how many people we squeeze through the courtroom it's how well that court enforces justice and that's what i think bitcoin is a system to do to enforce monetary justice and rules arbitrary to what any other single person thinks is their subjective view of it. It's like, no, this is the truth. And it works in spite of it all. 
I, I still think we are going to get up to those sort of crazy transaction volumes of SWIFT. I think that it'll be Bitcoin paired with uh, stocks and bonds and that sort of thing. And um, real estate will be traded with Bitcoin pairs. And the value of being able to settle to real property instantly is just too valuable for it not to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I don't really get, I mean, transactions have to be around just for people to believe that transactions are possible, right? Like if, yeah, okay. Sure. When, when right. last did you make a transaction? Uh, an hour ago. Okay. Well, damn. <laughs> on, light, on lightning. Yeah. On lightning. So, so, I mean, but like, the blockchain did not see that. that it's, it's that valuable that it, it's already proven itself. Yeah. And we're just us, adding right? more yeah. and more features okay. on. It's yeah. not competing with anything. It doesn't have anybody competing with it anymore. Yeah, I, I guess you don't need to make a transaction to prove that it's valuable to yourself. Right. right. Yeah. But yeah. someone else yeah. probably needs to see that. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. There's, there's tons of idiots around. Like, I think, <laughs> I think I mean, it's... I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, well, that's I a mean, really aggressive thing to say. I didn't, but, I didn't believe it until I saw it either. Well, sure. Yeah. Sure. But like, once you understand what it is and how it works, you don't need to keep seeing it to, yeah. to, to see that it's there, that it works. I think one unfortunate thing that happened since I got into Bitcoin is you used to demonstrate how cool Bitcoin is by sending Bitcoin from your phone to somebody else's phone or even through yeah. a webcam from your phone right. to somebody else. Yeah. And that impressed them. But unfortunately, with Venmo, it already happens. So there's no longer this yeah. like shocking moment where you're like, oh, we're an innovative technology that does stuff like this because they've right. already copied our innovation. You know, yeah. Yeah, no value is derived from sending. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not about payments, yeah. it, which is another, yeah. I mean, that completely changed in my mind over the past two years, too. Like, I was in Bitcoin for four years and thought that this was about payments and until I ran across Guy Swan and uh, <laughs> realized that m money is a lot about more than payments and uh, other stuff. Listen to the Crypto Economy podcast with Guy Swan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start charging you every time you say that. <laughs> One thing that did come up earlier is how Bitcoin – or we price our, sell, price, price our time, which is a mistake in the first place. You should price your work because you, know, you could do twice as much in the same period of time as somebody else. And one of the big economic problems we have today is everybody's required to go to work for the same amount of time. And productivity is sort of reflected, but it, it, it creates a problem where lots of people just slack off all day. That economists understand that people don't work for half the day. They're just there for 40 hours. But there's not been something to come along and correct it. And I'm kind of hoping Bitcoin corrects that in a way. Yeah, as, I mean, I kind of like slacking off all day. Like, if it gives somebody <laughs> happiness to, to slack off, I think they should slack off. Like, I don't... Well, I, it's, it's <laughs> this weird agreement where you can't make it clear that you're slacking off because your boss knows that you're slacking off but can't make it look like they're a bad boss. They want to have as many employees as possible. You're kind of overbilling everybody because your staff is a little bloated for like these rare situations when an emergency happens. Yeah. But you're still required to be at work for this time when you're not productive. That is actually, I might actually want to bring that up in tomorrow's episode um, because uh, I've done, I'm not sure if anybody read it. There's, a, there's an article. Oh my God, I forgot the guy's name. Is it like David Graeber? No, it was, it's the first article I've read by him. I think actually it's one of his first articles, I think he said. But it's, it's one where he's talking about the, where Keynesians get it wrong and how they don't factor in time. And he's basically uh, like condensing down arguments from a number of different books, or at least in, like in my idea, like when I'm reading his stuff. Uh, when I read the article or whatever, I thought of like you know, Hayek and like Mises, like, like key pieces like that. 
Um, but he just talks about how, like, um, because of the incorrect pricing of time, which is what, like, Keynesian economics doesn't factor in the fact that demand is about what we expect to happen in the future, not the demand that is happening right this moment. And because of that, when we push for all the demand and all the spending right in this moment, we lose the ability to spend those resources on making those production processes cleaner, making them more efficient, cutting the fat where we don't need it. Like we get, we bloat what is our current processes and we use all the resources that we should have invested in the future. Um, and that really good article, I'm actually really excited to dive into it tomorrow, but um, uh, it was exactly about that, and I just Keynesian thought of Keynesian errors on time and demand? Yes, yes. Who is it? I listened to it today. It's Ben Kaufman. Ben Kaufman. Ben Kaufman. Awesome. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, and it was, it was just a really interesting thing, and I didn't think about the fact that, like, employees slacking off is kind of a product of, like, an overabundance of... Uh, like just the, the inability to clean up your system to to make sure that people are only doing stuff that's engaging rather than like either delineating or um, automating what is like crap work that nobody actually wants to do that's not engaging that like you know doesn't keep people in, involved I guess you could say imagine the efficiency if you pay if your employer paid you for producing a report instead of you know to keep you there all day you know, you could get the report done faster. You could work for more people. Just the fact that we sell our time instead of our labor or the fruits of our labor, we're selling our time, was a big accounting mistake. Mm -hmm. I think it, um, it's the thing that's easy to measure, right? Like it's, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's one of those problems where, yeah, it'd be better if we could do that. But, you know, it's uh, ever heard that thing like your keys are lost somewhere and you're looking for them under the street light. You know they're not under the street light, but that's why you look for them there because, you know, so time's just like that thing that we can measure where it's like it's hard to measure the other thing, right? See, that's interesting because, I don't know. Or a person who, like, builds a dollhouse and spends 10 hours building it, and another person who builds a dollhouse, the quality of the dollhouse they produce is vastly different. Yeah, but I think it's also is the like the reason like paying people for their time came about is almost as a form of insurance. Like like it's it's a it's a way of hiding the risk from the employee because the employee doesn't want to take on the risk of being non-productive one day and really productive the next day. They want consistency. And I think it's just I think it's just like kind of a capacitor a natural capacitor in the business world between the people who are big risk takers and the people who are like give me a clean little box that I can like, like life is easy and kind of thing. See, my theory is it comes from more, it's, it's only a step towards freedom. Like it was leaving from a system where you were um, an indentured servant or something. You have a little more freedom than that, but 40 hours of your day are not your, 40 hours of your week are not yours for any citizen. You know, that's gone. You owe that to somebody else and you have to go pay that every, every week. Instead of, I could get this done in 10 hours. That's not an option, really. It's much more difficult, and we created a system where even if you could do it efficiently, this system is biased toward the people that do it inefficiently, who aren't uh, working on contract basis, who are doing this employment for 40 hours and just to show up at this one place, and you need a desk for them, and you need to pay for their health insurance, and all this extra bloat. Yeah. 
it's a good example in the normal everyday world of you know managing your risk and that's a lot of the similar things that people see with businesses accepting Bitcoin you know because there's a lot of built-in risk and hassle and in you know matching the revenues with the expenses and all your expenses in dollars and your your revenues in Bitcoin and that's just one more hurdle for businesses to jump through to accept Bitcoin the same way with your job you know if you've got all these projects that pay by the project your your rent and your cable bill and your internet are all monthly based and they're not use based mm -hmm. which is uh it's a it's a problem for people and it just yeah like it de-risks you mm -hmm. that's interesting i wonder if uh as we kind of get more towards like i think a lot of that product is actually in like our upbringing and like our education system it kind of teaches us to be scared of taking a risk or doing something different it's like get in line make sure you're doing the work exactly the way it's supposed to be done like, go to school for eight hours a day yeah even if you already know the material yeah. even if you're going to ace the test just we, be there exactly exactly we create this horrible aversion to doing things differently and for stepping out of line in any way um and uh because of that like as bitcoin starts to shift like the incentives in these systems, I think we'll see a lot of that fall away. I mean, the education system is already standing on a giant mountain, like, you know, pillars of sand. Like it's it's teetering on default across the whole thing right now. Um, it's, everything is pretty much. But um, uh, with that, like I think I think we'll see people more willing to take risk. Maybe the economy will push more towards in that direction of people getting paid for their actual productivity where we have like kind of contract or like specific project based employment is you know employment with you know quotations or whatever um and i don't know i could i could definitely see bitcoin making a big shift in like kind of how we do that i guess you could say um something that might be relevant here was um in one of your podcasts you talk about how the interest rate that the government sets is the government essentially placing a value on time itself. Mm -hmm. So is that is that relevant to this conversation? Like, yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think that's really the the like how I was saying. I think it's going to change how everybody thinks about that, their risk tolerance, and that kind of thing. Can you explain that though? Like, just that the government principle? setting an interest yeah. rate. How does that place a value on time itself? Okay, well. When we're using, like, like we all have scarce resources. Um, like, there's a certain number of microphones in this room. There's a certain number, amount of rubber to go around asphalt. Like, there, everything that we have as far as resources is scarce, and we have to produce it, and it takes a whole lot of work. That's why we're working eight hours a day. That's why we're doing all this stuff. Um, and when the interest rate is set arbitrarily, it is a price just like anything else, like a market price. Like, if, you, if we push the... Like if we did a price control on the price of bread to 50 cent, well, then we would just not have any bread. We would not be able to produce it to make up for the consumption because it costs more than 50 cent to make bread, package it, and get it to the shelves. Um, so we just wouldn't have bread anymore. Um, and uh, in that same sense, if we put a price control on the price of capital, what happens, like let's say the equilibrium price is 5%, whatever, and the government sets it at 1%. It is meaning that we are using more lumber, more, uh, more rubber to make, you know, like in metal to make microphones. We are using more, we are using all of these scarce resources that we have produced today when the market is telling us to wait for a year. 
When the market is telling, giving us a price that says we shouldn't use it all today because we really need some for eight months from now because people are trying to make projects that won't come to fruition for 12. And like, so the interest rate is telling us whether or not to use resources now for low order things. Like I might want a deck on my backyard, right? But what if the, the cost of wood or the cost of getting a loan for that deck is really high right now? I'm like, I can wait. I don't need the deck. Those resources are needed somewhere else. That's why the interest rate is high. So when they force it down, they're making me waste wood when I didn't know that the reason the interest rates are high is because a huge hurricane just hit China and they are soaking up all of the world's wood to rebuild from billions of dollars of damage. And I don't have to know it's part of a market, I just listen to the price. But when they manipulate that price, I waste all of that wood on my deck that I don't really need while people go without houses and incredibly high lumber prices in a hurricane destroy China, you know? Like, so the interest rate is that price of using capital today versus a year from now. And when you manipulate that, you screw up how we allocate resources across time, is the price of time. It's weird, it's like <clears throat> the government is setting our time preference. Like, it's, like the government sets the time press. That's exactly what they do. That's crazy. And they do it for this regime. That's so They do it weird. for this election so, period so, because they don't care yeah. about next election period. Right. They so, want themselves to look good. Yeah. I think that's a great argument for what I was talking about before with like uh, better art, music, and society exactly. because exactly. these are very low time preference type things. Build something that, that lasts. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's super interesting. I'm not sure how that really relates to what you were talking about. Well, yeah, if, if it turns out we're using half of our time goofing around at work, if you just had that 20 hours back, you could create art with half your time. You have all that extra 20 hours to do things like go on camping trips. and As opposed to looking busy. Exactly. Well, you, can, you can still work if you want to, right? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone stop working now. Guy, could you explain how the government sets interest rates? Is it just the like interbank lending at the end of the day? To to some degree, um, it's it's the I mean yeah yeah it's it's the it's the interest rate that banks loan with, like when they are borrowing to then issue it out to others. That is the that is essentially the the Federal Reserve interest rate. That's their set. Do you know what it is to like right now? Uh, 2.25? Two Jim here. Hey, what's up, man? Uh, yeah, two, okay, two and a half. Yeah, he says two and a half. And so they're planning to drop it 0.25, so gonna, or 0.5, but more realistically 0.25, 2.25. Is everyone across the board now going to have interest rates that are 0.25% less on their credit cards, on their mortgage, et cetera? No, that's commercial layer. That's, that's okay. a different layer. Or would it be an exponentially larger move or about the same move or a it doesn't have to move at all? So, so, there's, two, so there's, there's two different interest rates. There's, so the Fed interest rate kind of, it kind of ripples throughout the economy. So there's something called the LIBOR mm -hmm. interest rate, which is the rate that across seas banks charge for each other, kind of like the Fed's funds rate, to have access to dollars. So when the Fed cuts the Fed funds rate, the LIBOR rate, it's understood that it drops as well with it because the cost of getting dollars gets cheaper. 
And so that's what credit cards are actually tied to. It's the LIBOR plus the spread and plus all these different, um, like your credit risk and stuff like that, percentages. What actually affects immediately the from the Fed fund cuts are mortgage, mortgage rates. Because mortgage rates are tied to the 10-year treasury. And so what a lot of bond traders do is when the Fed talks about, okay, we're, we're thinking about lowering interest rates or the economy looks bad, they front run the Fed and begin to buy on the long end of the uh, curve uh, in order to front run the fact that the Fed is going to cut interest rates. It's an easy way for them to make some money. It, it, that's what caused the interest rates to be inverted at the moment because they're front running? So, so they're front running because if, if, the, if the Fed is cutting the interest rates, the signal that it tells the markets is that we believe growth is not as strong in the future as it is today. There's a lot more uncertainty. So because of that, we're worried and we're going to try and put, pump more liquidity into the system. What the bond traders take it as is like, okay, so people are worried about the future of what's going to happen. I wouldn't want to be in some corporate bond. I want to purchase treasuries because those are the safest. And I want to purchase something longer on the curve um, because that's going to give me more return. Mm. So that's what they do is they front run whatever the Fed does. And you can watch it. Like whenever it's in real time, you can watch what happens when like the, the Jerome Powell, who's the chairman right now, gives a speech and he's talking and he says a certain word that gives away of what they're going to do and you can watch the 10-year treasury and it just drops immediately because the bond traders are trying to front run whatever actions they think the Fed is going to do. Well, so how do bonds react to the to interest rates going down versus interest rates going up? Well, bond prices would go up. If interest rates went down, bond yeah, prices there's a would negative, go up. There's a negative, there's a negative relationship. Have you guys ever thought about the depth of knowledge we have with this meetup? We've got some really fucking smart people. Yeah. That, that was some pretty good stuff. There, Jesus, Josh, yeah. that was good. I just had one final question about because I I didn't guess I didn't realize this about LIBOR. So LIBOR is international banks. Yes, but it is dollars. Yes. So yes. do international banks get to print dollars? No. Per okay. so no in the sense of like the Fed. But yes, in the sense of through credit, they do. About to say, so they debt. so international yeah, banks yeah. get to do fractional reserve Correct. on U.S.'s the America's so currency. Li- I did not know that. LIBOR, so for U.S.-based uh, corporations and people, the Fed funds rate is the all-important rate that we care about because our dollars come directly from the Federal Reserve and other banks who pump credit into the system. Overseas, the most important rate is the LIBOR. Because that's the rate that if you're a, uh, you know, a, a manufacturer in South Africa or uh, oil in uh, Brazil and you need to get access to U.S. dollars, you're going to look at the LIBOR rate to figure out your cost of getting access to those dollars. And so they tend to mirror each other because if they didn't mirror each other, there would be an arbitrage. On the, on, there would be an arbitrage between the LIBOR and the Fed funds rate. So that's why they tend to drop in, in tandem. So could, I felt that the last big economic crash was caused by the dollars being irresponsibly loaned inside the U.S., uh-huh. but the economy could be crashed by lo- loaning dollars outside of the U.S. even, making irresponsible loans to other countries. Yes, you would, so... Or it, companies in other it countries. Would af- it would affect the U.S. indirectly, um, but 
Yes. So there's a phrase that I think it was either Greenspan or one of the other Fed chairmen that says, um, it's our currency and your problem. So we can dictate monetary policy. If we feel like lowering interest rates, we can do that. And whatever the unintended consequences of those actions are your, are your, is your fault. So when they cut interest rates, um, it, it, it indirectly or directly increases the amount of dollars into the system. That finds its way into European banks. Those European banks then want to make loans to emerging markets or other you know, countries or some, something like that. And they get that money. And what it does is it becomes hot money that flows into those assets of like stocks and different countries and it boosts their prices up, boosts those prices of everything up because people are now chasing for some sort of return outside of the US. And then once the Fed decides to raise interest rates, all that money flies right back out. So that's when you have like a crisis in the late 90s. I don't know if anybody remembers, but there was like the Asian financial crisis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was part of it. Um, you had the, the Mexican crisis in 94 was another currency crisis. So a lot of this is due to the monetary policy of the U.S. money flowing in. And it's great for them because corporations in those other countries get to borrow dollars cheaper so they can expand their production. But then that same money, once the Federal Reserve decides, oh, we're going to hike interest rates because of X, Y, and Z, that money flows straight out and it becomes a dollar crisis. So, so the LIBOR does not actually introduce systemic risk to the U.S. because they have to pay us back? LIBOR doesn't, so it, no, it doesn't, it doesn't introduce systemic risk to the U.S. In the, in the sense of the price, whatever LIBOR sets that it affects let me put it this way, because there's a lot of debt that's actually based on LIBOR in the U.S. That, that there's a lot of those debts, but it's they're more worried about on in general what the Fed does. What it absolutely does affect is everybody else outside of the United States. Hundred mm-hmm. percent, it does. Do you like how does it affect other currencies? All else being equal, when when the Federal Reserve drops interest rates. So, you look if Federal Reserve rate is at two percent. And let's say, or 5%, let's say the emerging market is 7%. I mean, I can get a 2% spread on it, and that's pretty decent. But I can just park my money in the U.S. dollar at 5 and I can collect a risk-free 5% on an annual basis. If I'm the Fed and I come and I say, okay, I'm going to drop interest rates to 1%, there's a huge spread now because everybody's interest rate just stayed at 7 but now the cost to borrow went to one in the United States. So traders are like, oh, this is easy. I'll borrow in the U.S., I'll convert it into another currency, and then I'll park it in whatever country it is that's paying me 7%, and then I can just convert it back and I'll make a profit. So that's what traders do globally, is once the cost of funding drops so low or is at zero, they can't get a return here in the U.S. anymore, so they go elsewhere. And they'll go anywhere where there's at least a positive yielding return, and then they'll go and collect it. But let's say after it's dropped from 1%, the Fed says, okay, uh, economy looks good. I think it's, it's going to be okay. We're going to start raising interest rates back up to 5%. Well, that spread went from 6% to 2%. There's not much of, a, there's not much of incentive for me to continue to take on that excess risk in an emerging market to get 7% 
when I can get risk-free in the United States for 5%. So that's how it contributes with the capital flows across the planet. When, when you think about how many layers this compounds into, just when, when the Federal Reserve with like the dollars, the world reserve currency, think about just how much all the countries and currencies that are now being dumped or loaned or vice versa, um, how much capital, how much actual resource is being consumed or misallocated based on just those people's decisions. Mm -hmm. Like no market indicators, not because it's scarce in one location or like abundant somewhere else, which is what a market price does is it takes it from abundant areas to areas to scarce areas, but just a central banking decision moves trillions of dollars around the world just to account for what a couple of old guys think. The, the, the part about this that strikes me as a giant scam is that they don't produce a service. They don't nothing. make a product. They don't advise someone on what to do. They do nothing and make immense amounts of money. They it's own sickening. the money. It's That's sickening. their service. It's yeah. they, their service is money. They and just they purposefully make it bad because it's really profitable for yeah. them. And it's so strange that the rest of the world allowed the U.S. to gain a monopoly on currencies it's like they didn't understand economics well enough at the time to realize, no, you should let your currencies compete. Just letting someone win is not a good decision. It's totally disempowering to everyone else. Do you know how the petrodollar, like what the political strategy behind the petrodollar was? Like how that came about? I'd like to hear it, sure. It was, <laughs> it was essentially the U.S. after like going during and after going off the gold standard. Um, it was essentially the U.S. making the political position of like, okay, we're going to go to these Middle Eastern countries and we're going to say, like, listen, we're going to give you free military support. We're going to uh, give you, I think, I think they offered like cash, like payments. Like they actually had like loan, like settlements with these uh, countries um, and basically said, we're going to give you all of this for free. All you have to do is price your oil in dollars. That's it. And then everybody got on the Bretton Woods Agreement, and like it was a brilliant political strategy for a country that knew they had lost the security of gold behind its um, uh, behind its currency. But what better demand do you hang your hook on than oil? Everybody's got to have oil, so we became the petrodollar. And so, what countries are part of that agreement? So, Saudi Arabia, the U.S., and England, or were other like European countries involved as well? That's a good question. It's it's more. It's more than that, but I can't give you how many. Like, what are all the countries involved in the Bretton Woods Agreement and like kind of OPEC? Like, I can't, I can't tell you yeah, I mean, a specific list. It's definitely more than that. But um, I'm just surprised. Yeah. Like someone like well, Germany couldn't resist because it was around World War II time. But why didn't some other superpowers who surely there were others that weren't weren't signatories that should have resisted? Right. Oh, the Bretton Woods Agreement. Yeah. Well, the U.S. had the manufacturing capacity. It was by far the most dominant economy on the planet. You have to understand, when World War II ended, Europe was decimated. Manif the, 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 the factories were destroyed. A lot of capital was just flat out destroyed. And all the productive capability was in the United States. So I think at one point, it accounted for 60, 70, or 80 percent of all global output came from the US. So there was an immense bargaining chip that they had to say, these are our terms. 
you're going to do this because we have, number one, we, we won the war. We still have our military you know, intact. And we still have our productive capacity still intact. So because of that, these are now the new rules for how we're going to operate internationally. Yeah. And just one anecdote that I don't have all the facts about, but I casually remember hearing it, was you know, at the agreement, it, you know, they're, they're hashing out all these different things about how it's going to work. And it was not a sure thing that it was going to be the dollar, the U.S. dollar that won out. And it was some, I think it was an English guy who was their representative who basically made some terrible blunder uh, at, you know, basically at the event or the negotiating table or some, somehow he was, you know, kind of had the best gotten out of him and it, it, it allowed the U.S. to get the place as the reserve currency and that was like a huge blunder. I forget the guy's name, but it was, it was like an NPR story about it or something. It was pretty good. Wow. This is interesting. This, um, this is saying, I thought there were more countries in the Middle East involved in this, like, because after, because Bretton Woods, like, like, you know, it set the stage as like, okay, the dollar is what we're using, basically. Hmm. And, um, and when we became the petrodollar, it looks like this is actually saying that this was just, it was just us and Saudi Arabia. There's 44 countries. Um, 44 countries ranging from Costa Rica, China, Venezuela, Iraq, Iran. Wow. There's, there's Where are you finding that? Because uh, the good old Wikipedia. I thought I was on. It's interesting because we often think about, or I, something I think about is the end of uh, empires and how what makes them fall apart. And you can see with this example of Britain was an empire around when World War II is the very end of it. They give up India and stuff, um, and. Part of what collapsed empires is incompetent leadership, like going into the Bretton Woods Agreement and failing to keep the pound as the, the world reserve currency or going when you're Neville Chamberlain going and negotiating with Hitler. Like you can see that the end of an empire, you have truly incompetent leaders at the highest levels of power making bad decisions. <laughs> I think everybody agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, can I get back to the international banking thing, Jameer? Um, do they have the same fractional reserve requirements as the U.S. banks do? Like, I have always told it's, you know, a, you know, what, uh, 10 to 1 fractional reserve rule here. Yeah. I don't know who enforces that rule. And do you know if the international banks have the same? Like, is it 5 to 1 for the international banks or something? It's probably going to be dependent upon the jurisdiction of that country, but it's okay. still fractional reserve. I okay. mean, a lot of the, a lot of the, Fractional reserve systems are very similar across the planet. Maybe one country it's five percent, another is three percent, another is two percent. But at, at the end of the day, there's a multiplier that still occurs. And, and who who audits that? Like for the U.S. banks, how are, how is who's so who who audit who who audits Bank of America to make sure they have only lent out you know ten times what they have, <laughs> only ten times it's what supposed, they have. It's supposed to be. The big, some of the big four auditors, but then you also have the Fed that does stress tests and to see if they have the right amount of capital requirements to withstand financial shocks and stuff like that. So when you hear stuff in the news about Deutsche Bank passing the stress test or Credit Suisse pa <laughs> failing the stress test, which I know it's funny to yeah. say Deutsche Bank, um, but that's what it is. Though. That's what it is. Okay. Is there there's capital requirements. And the Fed gives them a bunch of scenarios, and they say, we need you to run these scenarios to see how much capital you have to buffer against any sort of, in an event of like 2008, how would you respond? 
you know, what your profitability looks like, what your, does your capital position deteriorate, can you absorb the shock, and then they get data from that and then they make those decisions based on that. It'd be awesome if there was some kind of technology that had that kind of auditing built in on the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the base layer. Wouldn't that be so crazy? That would, that wouldn't have to do stress tests, that'd be awesome. <laughs> so just to reiterate, 5% fractional reserve means that if a bank wants to lend out five $200,000 loans, they only need to have $50,000. Yeah, it's yeah, 20x, yeah. whatever that base, that capital base is. And some are 3%. So some are, <laughs> yes, some are 3%. Some are just, some are 1%, which is at that point when you're getting there, it's just non existent. So I need $10,000 to do a million dollar loan. Yeah. Penny just in yeah. case somebody yeah. needs this dollar. Right, and right. I, and if you give $10,000 to get a $1 million loan and you charge 1% interest, I think you get your money back on the first month. Yeah. 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 That's the, that's the big thing is that it's like, it's like being able to rent, like I have a car, therefore I get to loan out everybody's car in the neighborhood. Like that's essentially what you're doing is that like you, you literally just have a way to steal resources from other people without telling anybody. Um, and that's what they do. They just take 900, in that case, $990,000 of someone else's capital from elsewhere in the economy and they loan it to somebody else and they get the interest and they don't share it back with who they took it from. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, this is one comment about, about fractional reserve banking that always kind of confuses me and hopefully I can be educated a little bit here. So the way that I think about fractional reserve banking is that I, in this case, I make a $1 million deposit to a bank. If it's a 5% reserve, then the bank can loan out 950000 of it and has to keep the 50 for reserve, right? And then through the circular you know, effect of the economy, now another bank has that 950 and then they loan 95% of that. And then another bank has it, and then it just keeps compounding in and of itself. Yeah, it's when you treat the banking system as one bank. Right. Like, so yeah. the language ends up getting, making it sound like that the bank is doing that when it's really the banking system in general. Like, like you were loaning out, like, so a, like a nine to one or whatever is you only get, have to keep 100000 on reserve for the loan, but then you've, that money becomes a new deposit. And they do it again. They do it again. So like the like for a nine to one, like the standard nine to one fractional reserve, if you have a hundred dollars, you end up creating in the system somewhere like nine hundred and ninety uh, uh, to a hundred. You you create like nine hundred ninety something dollars out of thin air. I thought here's how I thought it worked. You can correct me if I had it wrong. I thought it was that if you gave if you deposited a million dollars at and they had the let's say ten percent to keep it simple fractional reserve. They would then get a loan for ten million dollars, and loan that out. That that's the end result of like many transactions happening in the economy. But it's not a one to one thing. It's it happens through loans to different people. It's not. Oh, because I, I thought the Federal Reserve would loan the bank ten million dollars to get out because they have a million dollars worth of deposits. The bank, which so wait, say that like again. The Federal Reserve would would then like let. I guess I had it wrong. I, I want to know this, though, because I have the same question, no. too. So is, is the nine-to-one thing the effect of all of this people yes. um, loaning from here, yes. borrowing It's the here, total effect. It's accumulated. Mathematical. Yes. If they did that per bank, it would be inflation would be off the charts in seconds. It's the like, okay. literally. The result would be, okay. in the system yeah. of putting a million, you get an extra $9 million on top of that a million as 
Okay. As a new, Here. newly created. But how, but how is that something that could be a rule that's audited? At, since that's like an emergent property mm-hmm. of all of these banks making their individual decision, is what you said. But how can an emergent property like that be like regulated nine to one? Is somebody counting the amount of times that something has well, been? That's not the nine to one. The nine to one is like, let's take it with a situation where I'm the bank and you're the depositor and Jameer is loaning, right? So you give me a million dollars to yeah. keep in the bank. Mm-hmm. I can now loan out 900000 to Jameer, but you still think you have a million dollars. You can still pull out a million dollars out right. of your bank account. And I invented 900000 to give to him, and I'm not paying you interest because I'm not really worried. Your okay. deposit is just the, the backing for Jameer's loan, but we now have $1.9 million in circulation right. because I loaned it oh. from your deposit. And then he bank and do the same deposits thing. in Daniel's bank, oh, so it's and a, it's then he fa- makes $810,000. Okay. Throughout, throughout that whole process, right. yes. 10 times the yeah. amount of original right. money gets... Right. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks it's, for explaining yeah. that. It's like a factorial almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were right in the sense of that was the result. Like This was a system where it was just two actors, a bank, and somebody else, and theoretically they could create $9 million on top of the million that put in there. But the reality is that nine million of newly created credit is expanded throughout the entire system of many different banks repeating the process over and over again. So what happens when there's a bank loan and people want their cash? Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's gone. Um, it's crazy. Uh, one of the senators in the hearings uh, asked the Facebook guy, like, you know, I can trust my bank, you know, like. I want to know that I can withdraw my money when I can. How do I know that I can withdraw the Facebook coin? And Marcus, the Facebook guy, was like, um, unlike the U.S. dollar, Libra coin will be fully reserved. <laughs> <laughs> like, the senator didn't even he know. He didn't get it. He didn't get they it. He didn't even understand. Yeah. And he's like the like one of the guys on the banking committee of the Senate. Yeah, I know yeah. you're talking and about that, And he asked too. that question. Yeah. That was like really, I mean... The hearings were overall, I was, I was kind of optimistic at some of them, but yeah, our senators don't understand this at no, all. But they get the right policy. Right. That's freaking nuts. All right. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> no, but I would right. bet you, I would bet you there's probably, I, I see, I, I'd be willing to put up a little bit of money that not a person on the congressional floor could explain it as well as Jameer just did. Like just, just yeah. like how it yeah. works. Just, yeah. you know what? Like that's not their interest. Their interest is getting elected. Like that's what they're just running because they have some thing that they, they have some project that they think is really important and nobody will fund. So like we'll make it a government project, you know. Like, but yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Yeah. If 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 I put ten dollars on that, I would expect to win ten more dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I guess the argument in favor of the fractional reserve stuff is just so that you can kind of like spur on new projects. If someone has a new business idea, it's, it's easier to fund entrepreneurs if you have this kind of like money or whatever. Do you, I mean, what are you guys' arguments against that? I want to make a bakery, but I don't have any money. So give me some money and I'll bake some cakes and then, then I'll pay you back. And it worked for a really long time. And now it's just been abused for so long that I think that's the backpedaling excuse for what they actually wanted to do is that what's happening is that the bank is being restricted in how much money they get to use toward, you know, like, like they had 
as a full reserve bank, you'd have intense restrictions. You have to pay the interest rate. Like people have to lock up their funds into savings accounts. It's a huge, horrible thing. It's like it's like having to trade. Uh, you know, uh, make a decision with your employee between like, do we fix the air conditioning or uh, do we buy a new printer? You know, like like you have to make decisions when you have a lack of capital. Banks didn't like having a lack of capital, and they saw a way to get around that. But the political excuse is, oh, we can give loans to people, and people need loans. But it doesn't make any more doesn't make the capital resources any more abundant. It just redirects to projects today versus projects in a year or two that might have been more important because we were saving our money for those. Yeah, loans became cheap and saving became very expensive. Just, oh, I'll just save up enough money so I can buy my house in cash is a terrible economic decision, but that's been arbitrarily forced on everybody now because they made lending so cheap. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and I think, so I think, so I think credit in and of itself, it's like a tool with anything. I think the, the problem is is there's always over-exuberance in a system. So there's nothing that says that the system has reached max capacity for how much credit it can handle before it starts to really push prices up. And that's when you get into these really asset boom, boom and bust cycles. Like if there was a way to figure out how much actual credit the entire system needed and not a dollar more was given. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be a workable system. It's just like with anything that we create, we just abuse. We yeah. just abuse the hell out of it. And so banks don't know when to stop. Like think about the, the, the housing, the housing, the housing bus. Mm-hmm. Like banks didn't know when to stop extending credit to people. They went from the prime borrowers, which they were very reliable, they can pay their money back, and they went to the next in line they were okay. They weren't as bad. They, they weren't prime, but they weren't subprime. And then when that ran out, they were like, well, fuck it. Just, let's just give it to the subprime guys and flood them with as much. That's when you get the boom and bust cycle. Yeah. And I think, that's, I think that goes, takes us right back to the interest rate, is that we don't have a market price, which is that restriction on, is this a valuable buy for me? Do I, do I take out a loan to then loan it again? Well, depending on the interest rate, obviously that would be a really simple decision if we've already oversaturated the housing market. It's no, you don't do that because you're never going to make your money back. Um, but it's, it's like the same way, like like credit itself. Like there's nothing wrong with credit. Like in the same way that there's no wrong with there's nothing wrong with me lending you my car. I'm lending you resources. Um, but like we shouldn't lend ten thousand cars out of our lot if we've only got fifty. And, uh, and that's what we're doing. If, if obviously if everybody came and got 50 cars, we'd find out really fast that we're 9,000, you know, 950 short. Um, and we just don't have that with money because there's no pricing mechanism and there's no reserve lot to make sure like the resources are going exactly to who they're supposed to go to. Do you, do you guys believe that the financial sector is single handedly almost crashing the economy at times? Whereas if, if you took it out of the equation, the other 10 sectors would have enough balance that you'd never have a major recession where everything's down at once, or 10 out of 10, 11 out of 11 sectors are down at once? I think you would still have, you would still have, as long as you have human error and making judgments, you will have boom and bust cycles in something. Um, Because people get happy, people think the good times will never end, and they begin to overextend themselves. Because you can see it throughout countless times in history 
or just different assets, you can, you can take your pick of boom and bust cycles. Like I think gold went through that price, went, that, went through that cycle in Spain when, the new, when they went to the new world. They found these massive new deposits of gold and that just ended up destabilizing the economy because then the prices of a lot of things start to go through the roof or uh, go, yeah, go through the roof, essentially. And so it's really, like I said, if there was a way to figure out with credit, a way to know exactly how much credit to extend at any given time in the economy, it, could, it, it can work. And I still think credit is a good system. The problem is, is that things are good, things are good, and people get a little bit more riskier. They want to take more bigger bets because they look in the past and they think, oh, it never happened in the past, so we can, can, we can calibrate our models to say we can, we, can bar, we can leverage twice as much or three times as much or four times as much, and then, it, and then it bursts. Like We have that right now with corporations because interest rates have been so low in a lot of places they're at zero that there are a lot of corporations that should not be around right now but are surviving because interest rates are at zero percent. Mm-hmm. They've, they've just gotten so massive because they have the ability to borrow at a much better rate than the younger companies. And what it's doing and they're finding out is it's killing innovation right now for new companies to come behind and disrupt them. Mm-hmm. Because they're able, to, they're able to just go out and say, all right, um, yeah, we're not as nimble as fast as you know, Steve's corporation. So what we'll do is we'll go to the market We'll sell a bond for 1% interest rate, a billion dollars. We'll buy the company. And now the company is part of our portfolio. The company didn't get necessarily better, but it had access to cheap capital. Otherwise, it would not have happened five years ago. If they had tried to borrow a billion dollars, it would have cost 5%. Now it's zero. So that's, that's the issue that you have here is that everything has just been leveraged up. You even have a situation now where... Uh, Globally, there's about $14 trillion of negative yielding debt. That's not supposed to happen in economics. Like, <laughs> that is like, if you told somebody 10, 15 years ago that we would have this, this, the framework we have today, they would call you nuts. Because based on economic law, it does not make sense to have a negative yielding um, bond or instrument. You would just hold cash. Cash is at least zero bearing outside of like the cost to like hold it and stuff like that. But it's much better than paying for the right of somebody else to borrow against you. That's that's what a negative I mean, yielding debt says. That that concept of negative yielding debt, I think, is just the icing on the cake. Like to me, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, you know, the fractional reserve stuff. So it makes sense. Like I lend you money, then it just flows through the uh, you know and leverage. Okay, yeah, maybe you can get a get away from yourself and you know lever up too much, but. Negative yielding debt just fundamentally does not make sense in a rational world. That's the quintessential like WTF moment, right? Like, yeah. like <laughs> I give you a hundred dollars and a year later you give me ninety-nine dollars. Like, what? And there's yeah, the chart is like thirteen or fourteen trillion dollars worth of that type of debt out there in the yes. world today. Those are good like, investment decisions these days. <laughs> yeah. Like Germany's ten year is like negative point four percent. Yep. Dude, uh, on your question about the booms and busts, though, um, I would say, like, humanity is kind of by nature a very volatile organism. Yeah. Like, there is yeah. there is no such yeah. thing as 
uh, a civilization or, or a group of humans without hype and without low periods and stuff. But I think what the, like that's kind of what the market does for us though in like adjusting prices quickly to those things. Like, like another great example is actually the hurricane that I just mentioned is that when you have a sharp scarcity of resources, you have a sharp increase in the price so that you flood those resources in from every other possible source that is less important. Um, like, so, like, it's the only reason, like, I mean, think about how many people, we had someone uh, during one of these recent hurricanes, we had somebody uh, from Texas cutting down the trees in our neighborhood because prices had, like, tripled in our area, and they just packed their whole crew into a couple of trucks, and they drove to North Carolina, and they spent three weeks, 12 hours a day cutting down trees, and they got months' worth of revenue out of it. There were so many people there cutting down trees and cleaning it up that it, it gets cleaned up fast because all the important resources get used quickly. So when you have these, like, booms and busts, what happens is that the, because the market can't adjust quickly, can't get all the tree cutters there overnight, is that you lose the, that gravity effect, that rubber band effect, sending us back to equilibrium as quickly as it can. And suddenly that rubber band gets insanely loose. And we get way out into the stratosphere. And these trends that would be six months these little contra like contractions in the economy that might even be seasonal, you know, just like winter to winter, instead go all year, and then all the next year. And then it goes for 10 years, 11 years, and now it's perfect utopia land. Now it's just the whole way of life. A generation grew up not knowing what a recession looked like, and then we, over we redo, we do every single winter for all of those 10 years all at once. We still get the rubber band. We just fly way the hell out of the way first and come crashing back down like a rock, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so we would still have contractions, but they would be like a ton of small contractions, and they would just kind of be the normal way of life. We would know to actually have some degree of getting worse is Jared around. But I still think if you don't have a manipulated economy like REITs and consumer goods and... Um, these different and technology they should not be moving in the same direction at all times they you know two should be up one should be down and the fact that they can all go down for two years in a row it that seems completely that's wrong unnatural. to me yeah, no yeah, yeah. these yeah, are that's unnatural like i think this past to like the end of 2018 when there was a lot of volatility i forgot what the event i think it was a four sigma event that really occurred which is you literally had every single asset class falling everything was down bonds were down because in that risk-off scenario bonds should have appreciated because people were selling off stocks to purchase um to purchase you know bonds that didn't happen a lot of stuff that traditionally there there are we call counter cyclical it didn't happen at all and so a lot of people are pointing to it as like this is the environment that we live in where the central bank has they have, con they have control of the market, essentially. They have control of the treasury market. Oh, yeah, yeah my, 